0: Luke chapter 20, verse 27, some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this, of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. In the In the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, For he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. To situate you a little bit with where we are in Luke Jesus is in the last week of his life, before the crucifixion. And as every single day, every moment passes, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. And as Jesus does so, the opposing forces and voices, particularly against him, get louder and louder. In the Gospel of Luke so far, we've seen Jesus resisted or opposed in a few different realms of life. We've seen him opposed spiritually regarding the demonic forces that have tried to stumble him and and caused him to stop his ministry. As we saw last week, particularly in the conversation that he had with some spies about taxes and the government submitting to the authority of the government, we saw people trying to trip him up in a legal or civil manner. But today, we see Jesus facing opposition concerning theology and doctrine. Specifically, when you read the text we see the Sadducees posing a very, or a seemingly clever question about the correlation between the resurrection and marriage. But once again, here in Jesus' response, verses 34 and following, we see that Jesus is the all-wise, all-good, all-knowing king who, in a good way, cannot be shaken and cannot be stirred. So when you read this passage Marriage is certainly the hook that draws you in. It's certainly the thing that that initially sets up the conversation. But the focus of this text, believe it or not, is not on marriage. Because one thing I've repeated here a couple of times is when you read a passage of Scripture, look for repeated phrases, repeated ideas, repeated verses. And you see, as you read the text, the repeated topic is that of life after death, the afterlife, the resurrection, the new life, what will happen after we die. So through this Q&A encounter, what Jesus does here is reorients our minds, reorients their minds from what is temporary to what is eternal. From what is temporary to what is eternal. And we see here, what the, the title of the message is, we see Jesus teaching here that marriage is temporary. In a, not in a, in a negative way, but your marriage won't last. It is temporary. But what will last, what is permanent, what is primary in life is your identity. What, what identity? What, I, there's a lot of identity. Your identity as a child of God. So though your marriage might be temporary, Jesus is reminding us of our permanent identity as God's children. And if you are a child of God, that is what lasts forever. That is what lasts forever for eternity, and Jesus is reminding us to build our lives on what matters most. He's not saying marriage doesn't matter. He's not saying it's not important. Absolutely not. He's saying this is what matters most. This is what will matter throughout eternity. Build your life upon it. So to arrive at that truth, then we'll walk through the text. We're going to look at Jesus, number one, reproving faulty assumptions. Number two, reinforcing our permanent identity And then lastly, Jesus revealing himself as the God of the living. So firstly, Jesus reproves faulty assumptions. Look at verses 27 to verse 35 with me. Right there off the bat, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Now in the Gospel of Luke, this is the first occasion in which the Sadducees are mentioned explicitly like this. This is also the only recorded instance in the Gospels where Jesus has a one-on-one encounter with this group of people. You might be wondering, well, then who are the Sadducees then? I've heard of the Pharisees before, but who are these Sadducees? Um, According to the historian Josephus, if you've never heard of him, he was a Jewish historian in the first few centuries. But he, he noted that in the first century, there were three kind of big, broad groups of Jewish thought. One was the Pharisees. One was the Sadducees, the other was a group called the Essenes. So we've heard about this one a lot. So the Sadducees are that kind of other group. And you're wondering, what, what's the difference? What, what are you talking about? Think about modern day type of conversations about denominations or moves of, in the Christian life. So for, for example, on one end of the spectrum, you have what's known as either Reformed or maybe Calvinistic types of thinking or types of theology On the other end of the spectrum, you have more charismatic or Arminian types of theology. So there is some overlap, there is some unity, some things they agree upon, but there are a lot of disagreements. Some of them are very big. So in the first century, there were some big disagreements between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in particular. And one of them, as you saw in the text, nearly every time the Sadducees are mentioned in the New Testament, there's that parenthetical phrase right beside them. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. In other words, the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in heaven or hell, in rewards or punishments after you die. They did not believe in a resurrection at the end of time. They believed that once you die, you, are di- you die. You are in the ground, period. And you may have heard this slight little joke before, but the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. So, um, in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, there's another verse that expands who these people are. Acts 23, verse 8, it tells us, "...the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things." So, in addition to denying the afterlife, they also denied the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels or demons, so, and this might sound odd to us. You might think, well, if you're a Christian, or if you're, in that context, there's no Christians yet, but if you're a Jew, don't you have to believe in heaven and hell? Isn't that one of the central core doctrines of the Judeo-Christian life? For the Sadducees, you have to understand, they, they had a high exaltation of the Torah, is what it's called, which is the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they they esteemed those books above all the rest of them. And if you read those five books kind of back to back, you might see or make the observation there is no explicit verse that says heaven and hell. There's no explicit verse that talks about the resurrection per se. Jesus is about to demonstrate how they don't fully know the scriptures that they claim to know so well. Many of these uh, religious leaders had memorized those first five books of the Bible verbatim. They knew every single word, but they'd still not connected the dots as as they ought to have. But this is kind of their thinking. So what they do? They come up to Jesus and bring before him a an example and a question, which is quite extreme when you read it. It's not too hard to follow the movements of what's going on. Uh, when um, right there in verse 28, teacher. They said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So, the context. There's one man. The man marries a a wife, marries a woman. The man has six other brothers. So there's seven guys total. The first guy dies. So then, according to Jewish custom, which is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Verses 5 and 6, if you want to go look at it, what they're referring to, you know, Moses wrote for us. If a man's brother dies, Deuteronomy 25. So the first one died. The second brother is then commanded to go marry that wife, who's a widow. And keep in mind, they don't have children. Because if, they had cho- if the, that couple had children, then it's upon the children to take care of the widow. So God's heart, God's desire, is the provision and protection of his people. So if a widow... Right, So on and on it goes, Two, three, four, five. They keep dying, keep dying, keep remarrying this widow. Don't have any children in the entire process. Finally, the woman dies, verse 32. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? There are two major assumptions backed, uh, packed into this question. I don't know if you picked up on them or not. Number one, the resurrection will happen. That's an assumption, a big one, and it's kind of interesting what the the Sadducees, right there in verse 27, they say it's not going to happen, but for the sake of argument, for the sake of winning this argument, they grant that it's going to happen. just shows their uh, duplicitous heart, as the previous passage was talking about. So yeah, the resurrection is going to happen, but we're only saying that because we want to trip you up, Jesus. So that's one assumption. The second one is that marriage as we know it is going to continue in the life to come. That is a very, very big assumption. So, what does Jesus do? How does he respond? How is he going to answer this conundrum? Whose wife will he pick, or whose husband will she pick? In terms of, you know, is it the first husband's wife? Is it the second? Who, who is the true husband of this woman? And for us today, this might bring up just questions about, you know, divorce and remarriage. Whose husband and wife is going to be the case in life to come? But Jesus yet again reproves the leader's faulty assumptions in verses 34 and 35. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Verse 35 But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. In other words, your marriage is temporary. Your marriage won't last. Now, immediately, say something like that, you read something like that, the experience you may or may not have had regarding your own marriage, how joyful and fruitful it might have been. You might be wondering at this point. You're telling me marriage isn't going to be a thing in the future? I, I cannot imagine that. I've been married to my spouse for 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years. I would not know what to do without my spouse. I want to be with him forever. How is it good news that there's no marriage in this context, this earthly idea that we have? How's that good news that there's no marriage in the resurrection? Let me just simply say, the focus of this sermon is not on marriage. As We'll unpack and as we'll see. But that is a valid response. A valid response, and I, I want to briefly address it. First of all, you have to back up a little bit and really consider what is the purpose of marriage. Why did God make it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Why did the Lord make it in the first place? That's a big question. There's different dimensions by which you can answer that. But according to Ephesians chapter 5, perhaps the primary reason that the Lord made marriage is to serve as an illustration, to serve as a tiny little picture of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. I love what one author said. He said, God did not create marriage as an end unto itself. It exists not to tell its own story, but to tell the story of Jesus's marriage to the church. We find that explicitly true in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. The apostle Paul writes, this is a profound mystery, referring to the union between a man and a woman. Uh, leaving and cleaving, father and mother being united to the wife, two becoming one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am ultimately talking about Christ and the church. That is what marriage is primarily about, a reflection, a tiny little picture of Christ's love for the church. So today, if you are happily married or were happily married at one point, the wrong assumption that you and I might cling to, is this. If I'm not married in the new life, in the afterlife, I will never again experience the joy or fulfillment I'm getting from my spouse today. I remind you that your life, that you were made for something far greater than any human being could ever offer you. The, the, the classic vacuum, the hole in your heart, is so great, so deep, only one person can truly fill it, and that is the Lord Himself. This is true with every aspect of life. I need, you might have a long work day, I need some sleep, I need a good six hours at night, eight hours, whatever it might be. That's good, that's a a good gift from God, but the true rest that your soul needs can only be found in His presence. You know, I'm hungry today, I, I want some lunch, some of you might think of that right now, I want some lunch. The food that you need is a good gift, absolutely. But it is only a tiny little foretaste, a reminder, the true bread, the true water that your soul needs is found in God. You know, I need a spouse, I want a spouse, I need that marriage, that companionship, whatever it might be, that's a good gift from God. But the true fulfillment that your soul desperately longs for is only found in Christ Himself. The other dimension of it is right, that's if you're married. That's a big assumption we might have. If you're single, one wrong assumption that we might hold on to is and sometimes in conservative Christian circles, it, it can be easy, I think wrongly so, but it can be easy for conservative people to make marriage the end goal of life, that you need to be married to be happy, period. That's just simply not true when you read the Bible. And the exaltation, the prominence that Jesus, in particular, brings upon singleness when used for His glory. But I love what one author said about singleness. He said, "If marriage shows the shape or the image of the gospel, singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel." It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. If marriage shows the shape or the image of you know, the husband and wife, it, it's a picture of Christ in the church. If marriage shows that, singleness displays and showcases the sufficiency of the gospel. Meaning, you can have an extreme, th- the fullest, most fulfilled, most joyful life if you were single, if you find your identity in Christ. Case in point, Christ himself, fully man, fully human, was never married, but also the Apostle Paul a man who used his singleness for the good of the church and the glory of God around the world. So, church, for you not today. whatever your marital status is, marriage is temporary. It is a good gift. And I, I meant to bring one, but marriage is a mere wallet photo. Something you pull out, you look at, oh, it's nice, that's a nice picture of my grandkids or of my children or of my, my spouse when you're traveling. It's a wallet photo. It compares nothing to being in the presence of your spouse. That is what it's like for you and I regarding earthly marriage. It's a wallet photo picture and the reality of what it's going to be like when we are in the presence of God, when our hearts are truly filled. So Jesus here, he reproves our faulty assumptions. But we go on. If marriage is temporary, Jesus secondly reinforces what's primary what's permanent see this in verse 36 they can no longer die people in the resurrection in the in the new life they can no longer die for they are like the angels now you notice right there take note of the wording it doesn't say that we become angels it says we're like the angels in that in the, in this context here in that we won't die right? angels are spiritual they they are everlasting. They're not eternal because God created them. But their souls aren't going to perish. And likewise, we will not die in the afterlife. But death will be no more. That's kind of the big point. They can no longer die for they are like the angels. Death will be no more. The devastation and the destruction that death brings upon us, the sorrow, the heartache, all of that is going to be gone. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. Very well-known verse beautiful one for our souls to cling to it says look god's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and god himself will be with them and be their god he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away i'm making all things new so when it comes to the resurrected life, the afterlife, uh, the new life. You have to understand it's not merely about the absence of pain and suffering. Sometimes we like to think that or you know, we, we have that, that backache or that sickness or poor vision, whatever it might be, and we might think, I want that to be gone. I want the bad parts of my life to be gone. That's true, but rather the resurrected life is about experiencing the fullness of joy. That God has prepared for us as Psalm 16 talks about here's what I'm getting at the fullness of joy listen closely the fullness of Christ the fullness of joy that he offers to us is only available for those who are his children it's only available for those who are his children and if you are a child of God that is the deepest way the strongest way by which you can experience his pleasure and his goodness Think of it like this. Uh, last October, I think it was, we went to the Biltmore in Asheville. Or, yeah, I think it's in Asheville, technically, North Carolina. And the Biltmore estate, if you aren't familiar with it, it's just this massive kind of mansion, big house. It's an estate. And while we were there, at the bottom, there are some servants' quarters where people, it's, it was their job, their full time job. They were allowed to live there, that was their housing. But they cooked food, they cleaned the, the big house and whatnot, kept care of the grounds. So, servants there. Okay, I, I picture that, and, and here's this. If you were a servant or a butler, whatever you wanna, term you want to use, and you served in a loving, rich, godly person's home, okay, I put those things in conjunction. It's not just a rich person, it's not just both and, just for the sake of this example. You serve in that person's home, you get to experience some of those blessings. You get to have the leftovers in the kitchen. You get to just eat all of them up. You get to have your own little private room on your own little twin bed there. You get to experience the warmth of the home in the, in the cold of the winter. You get to experience some blessings of the owner. And in Scripture, we are likened to being servants. We are servants, slaves of Christ, as Paul usually identified himself as. But you go a step further. If you are a friend of this owner, the blessings, the pleasure, the experience of the, the the privacy in which you can enter into more of the pleasures expands because you are then invited to sit at the table. You are then allowed to go play billiards in the guest room. As If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You can go in and see the private firearms collection, And try them out as a friend. You get a little more access to the riches of this owner. But if you are a child, if you are a son or a daughter of this person, you've just maxed out in terms of the access you have to the riches and the blessings of this home, of this family, because you have this person's name. And it's not as though you were just a child. In this context, you are the favorite child and you have... All I mean you just get all the great attention and showering of blessing that the parents can give upon you. That is what it's like for you and I to be a child of God. We have the most intimate access to the blessings to God Himself. As Romans if you want some holy homework, as I've called it before, read Romans chapter eight and Ephesians chapter one. Romans eight verse seventeen, where it talks about adoption and, and our status as children of God. It says this, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ will inherit, all the riches, all the perfection, all the glory that Christ will inherit, it tells us we are co-heirs. We are right alongside of him in terms of what we will get from God. But it's, you have to understand in Scripture, heaven and the resurrected life, it's not about merely getting a gold crown or walking on a gold street. The treasure of heaven is God himself. Because it says, if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of who, rather? Romans eight seventeen, Heirs of God. We inherit God himself. Now it might be weird to think about, but remember, our hearts were made for his presence. Our hearts were made for fellowship with him. And that is where we will experience it. In his presence as children of God. In today's world, when it comes to the topic of identity, I, have you all thought about that before, the topic of identity? Sometimes it's uh, on the news too much, I think. But where do we find our identity today? Well, I'm married. I'm single. I'm a parent. I'm a grandparent. I'm white. I'm black. I'm Asian. I'm Hispanic. I'm male. I'm female. I'm a student. I'm a working professional. I'm retired. I'm a golfer. I'm a climber. I'm a gardener. I'm a musician. I'm a movie lover. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm an independent libertarian. You fill in the blank. Right? You go on and on and on. It goes. That's what we're, where we build our identity in these titles. But the point is this. There's only one title that will truly last in eternity. And that is as a child of God. It's the only thing that will last Now, you have to understand me right. I did not say it's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that will last. Being a male or female, that's good. Being married or single, that's good. Being Being a student, working, that's all good. But the only thing that will last is being a child of God. Are you building your life upon that identity? Are you building your life upon that identity? But then lastly... Jesus reveals himself as the God of the living. Look at the text, verse thirty seven and thirty-eight. In the account of the burning bush. In the account of the Let me stop right there and just quickly point out. Some, talking with some of y'all before regarding reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, you might say, Yeah, I know that verse, but I'm not really good on chapter number or chapter verse numbers. And, and let me just say that's okay if that's maybe your your only or a weakness in your Christian life because you have to understand the chapters and verses we have in our Bibles weren't added until the 1200s into the 1500s. 1200s were the chapters. The full chapter verse that we have wasn't finished until the 1500s. So back in the day, in Jesus' time, Jesus himself, he did not say in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he said, in the account of the burning bush. So it's okay if that's your knowledge of Scripture. As we've read this morning, in the account of Noah and the ark. It's okay. So, the account of the burning bush, which, for reference, for us today, just for the sake of turning there fastly and quickly, it is Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. But in that account, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Remember, the Sadducees aren't, marriage isn't the main thing that they were asking about. It's the gateway into accusing and attacking Jesus on the resurrection. So the big idea is the resurrection. The resurrection is permanent. It is fixed. It is true. It's going to happen. And to them, the resurrection doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist in the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus shows, you see, even in the book of Exodus, that y'all cherish and y'all esteem, even there, Moses shows that the dead rise. Even there, there's evidence of the afterlife. Because God reveals himself as the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. It's active present tense. It's not past tense. Because, I mean, this might be a semi-bad example you might hold me against. But to, to help communicate that point, if you don't understand the language there. Hillsborough Baptist Church. I, I can say today, I am the pastor of Hillsborough Baptist Church. I'm grateful to be here. It's a privilege, but by God's grace, I'm the pastor here. If, if the building, the entire facilities, let's say it was it all burned down, all to ashes. It was all cleared away. Let's say all of y'all moved away across the country. Let's say the, the financial status of the church just completely dissolved. Everything is completely wiped out and gone. I could not say, I am the pastor of Baptist Church. I could say, I was the pastor, because the implication is it doesn't exist anymore. So here, for God to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the implication is they're still living. He didn't say, I was the God. He said, I am the God. Now, what is the point of all of this? Let me try to, to tie it in and wrap this up. The Lord made many promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will bless you. I will give you many descendants. I will give you this land to live in. I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to the nations. Many promises to them. But if somebody is dead, how can you live out that promise to them? You can't. The promise is done in that context. But here, since they are still alive, since they are still living to some degree, right, they don't have their physical bodies, they're in heaven, but since they're still living, the Lord can still be faithful to the promises that he had made. So the point for you and I today is the promises of God that he has spoken to us. They will last, they will continue, they will happen because as nasty and as strong and as powerful as death is, it cannot stop the promises of God. God is still living. He is still alive and active, but also because of the resurrection, you and I will still be alive and active. and Everything that God has promised to us will come to fruition because he is the God of the living. So God, Jesus here, he's not only establishing the resurrection is true, it is firm, it is going to happen, but he's also pointing to and alluding to the goodness of the resurrection. How is it a good thing? Why is it good for us? Because as as God, and I love what one um, commentator said, he said, as God actively sustains a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even Moses now, as God actively sustains a relationship with these people, so today, God will sustain an active, faithful relationship with you. Nothing can stop his promises. So church, in conclusion, your marriage is temporary. It's not bad news. It's a gift. Enjoy it. Invest it in it. Participate in it. But it is temporary. Jesus reminds you and I what is permanent, what is foundational, and that is as being children of God. That's what lasts, that's what's permanent. And it's simple. Are you building your life on that identity? Is that where you find your hope, your joy, your meaning, your purpose, your fulfillment in life? Being his child and living as his child. We all need to do that more and more. We all have many assumptions, whether it be about marriage or heaven or hell or life, whatever it might be. We all have many assumptions that need to be corrected by the truth of Christ. And when God corrects us, it's always towards the good, towards the better, towards the more pleasure and enjoyable. It's our responsibility to humbly submit ourselves to him and say, Lord, you know what's best. I don't fully, and let me just be honest with you, I don't fully get the whole marriage component of it, right? I'm not trying to act like I do, but I'm just telling you what's there in Scripture. And Lord, I don't fully get it, but I know your ways, your word, your will is best. Help me to walk in accordance with it. Help me to trust you to walk day by day, cherishing the gifts you've given me, but investing in building my life upon the most important identity, and that is as being your son or your daughter. Church, rejoice in that truth. Build your life on that truth. It's a lifelong endeavor, but I'm here to remind you today, keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. Build your life upon your identity as a child of God. So church, let's pray, and then we'll close with the doxology. Our Father, in this world that is ever-changing, this culture that is always, seems like it's shifting from one day to the next, when it comes to our own personal emotions, our own thoughts, everything is always changing, it seems. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will please anchor our souls in the truth, in the permanent, fixed reality of who you are and of who you've called us to be. Thank you that you've given us the privilege of being your children. Thank you for adopting us into your family. We ask that you will help us to live in such a way that that is our primary identity and that as we derive our ultimate hope, meaning, and fulfillment from being your child, may we then live out the rest of our identities, the rest of our roles with faithfulness, with joy, with gratitude. We look forward to the day when we will be in your presence where our deepest desires will be filled But Lord, as your word also declares, we will also be there with our loved ones. And we ask that you'll please sustain us. Help us to be faithful until that day comes. What a glorious, beautiful day that will be when our Jesus we will see. Thank you for that privilege. Hold us close until we see you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.